Chapter 1, Section 2 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung. Translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867 to 1923. Chapter 1, Section 2. Case of Somnambulism in a Person with Neuropathic Inheritance, Spiritualistic Medium. The following case was under my observation in the years 1899 and 1900. As I was not in medical attendance upon Miss S.W., a physical examination for hysterical stigmata, unfortunately, could not be made. I kept a complete diary of the seances, which I filled up after each sitting. The following report is a condensed account from these notes. Out of regard for Miss S.W. and her family, a few unimportant dates have been altered, and a few details omitted from the story, which for the most part is composed of very intimate matters. Miss S.W. is fifteen and a half years old, Reformed Church. The paternal grandfather was highly intelligent, a clergyman with frequent waking hallucinations, generally visions, often whole dramatic scenes with dialogues and so forth. A brother of the grandfather was an imbecile eccentric, who also saw visions. A sister of the grandfather, a peculiar, odd character. The paternal grandmother, after some fever in her twentieth year, possibly typhoid, had a trance which lasted three days, from which she did not awake until the crown of her head had been burned by a red-hot iron. During states of excitement later on, she had fainting fits, which were nearly always followed by a brief somnambulism during which she uttered prophecies. Her father was likewise a peculiar, original personality with bizarre ideas. All three had waking hallucinations, second sight, forebodings, and so forth. A third brother was also eccentric and odd, talented but one-sided. The mother has an inherited mental defect often bordering on psychosis. The sister is a hysteric and visionary, and a second sister suffers from nervous heart attacks. Miss S.W. is slenderly built, skull somewhat rachitic, without pronounced hydrocephalus, face rather pale, eyes dark with a peculiar penetrating look. She has had no serious illnesses. At school she passed for average, showed little interest, was inattentive. As a rule, her behavior was rather reserved, sometimes giving place, however, to exuberant joy and exaltation. Of average intelligence, without special gifts, neither musical nor fond of books, her preference is for handwork and daydreaming. She was often absent-minded, misread in a peculiar way when reading aloud. Instead of the word ziga, goat, for instance, said gase, instead of trepa, stare, stega. This occurred so often that her brothers and sisters laughed at her. There were no other abnormalities. There were no serious hysterical manifestations. Her family were artisans and business people with very limited interests. Books of mystical content were never permitted in the family. Her education was faulty. There were numerous brothers and sisters, and thus the education was given indiscriminately. And, in addition, the children had to suffer a great deal from the inconsequent and vulgar, indeed sometimes rough, treatment of their mother. The father, a very busy businessman, could not pay much attention to his children, and died when S.W. was not yet grown up. Under these uncomfortable conditions, it is no wonder that S.W. felt herself shut in and unhappy. She was often afraid to go home, 
and preferred to be anywhere rather than there. She was left a great deal with playmates, and grew up in this way without much polish. The level of her education is relatively low, and her interests correspondingly limited. Her knowledge of literature is also very limited. She knows the common school songs by heart, songs of Schiller and Goethe and a few other poets, as well as fragments from a songbook and the Psalms. Newspaper stories represent her highest level in prose. Up to the time of her somnambulism, she had never read any books of a serious nature. At home and from friends, she heard about table-turning and began to take an interest in it. She asked to be allowed to take part in such experiments, and her desire was soon gratified. In July 1899, she took part a few times in table-turnings with some friends and her brothers and sisters, but in joke. It was then discovered that she was an excellent medium. Some communications of a serious nature arrived, which were received with general astonishment. Their pastoral tone was surprising. The spirit said he was the grandfather of the medium. As I was acquainted with the family, I was able to take part in these experiments. At the beginning of August 1899, the first attacks of somnambulism took place in my presence. They took the following course. S.W. became very pale, slowly sank to the ground or into a chair, shut her eyes, became cataleptic, drew several deep breaths, and began to speak. In this stage, she was generally quite relaxed. The reflexes of the lids remained, as did also tactile sensation. She was sensitive to unexpected noises and full of fear, especially in the initial stage. She did not react when called by name. In somnibulic dialogues, she copied in a remarkably clever way her dead relations and acquaintances with all their peculiarities, so that she made a lasting impression upon unprejudiced persons. She also so closely imitated persons whom she only knew from descriptions that no one could deny her at least considerable talent as an actress. Gradually, gestures were added to the simple speech, which finally led to attitudes passionales and complete dramatic scenes. She took up postures of prayer and rapture with staring eyes and spoke with impassionate and glowing rhetoric. She then made use exclusively of literary German, which she spoke with an ease and assurance quite contrary to her usual uncertain and embarrassed manner in the waking state. Her movements were free and of a noble grace, depicting most beautifully her varying emotions. Her attitude during these states was always changing and diverse in the different attacks. Now she would lie for ten minutes to two hours on the sofa or on the ground, motionless with closed eyes. Now she assumed a half-sitting posture and spoke with changed tone and speech. Now she would stand up, going through every possible pantomimic gesture. Her speech was equally diversified and without rule. Now she spoke in the first person, but never for long, generally to prophesy her next attack. Now she spoke of herself, and this was the most usual, in the third person. She then acted as some other person, either some dead acquaintance or some chance person whose part she consistently carried out according to the characteristics she herself conceived. At the end of the ecstasy there usually followed a cataleptic state with flexibilitas theria, which gradually passed over into the waking state. The waxy, anemic pallor, which was an almost constant feature of the attacks, made one really anxious. It sometimes occurred at the beginning of the attack, but often in the second half only. The pulse was then small, but regular and of normal frequency, the breathing gentle, shallow, 
or almost imperceptible. As already stated, S.W. often predicted her attacks beforehand. Just before the attacks, she had strange sensations, became excited, rather anxious, and occasionally expressed thoughts of death. She will probably die in one of these attacks. During the attack, her soul only hangs to her body by a thread, so that often the body could scarcely go on living. Once after the cataleptic attack, trachypnea, lasting two minutes, was observed, with a respiration rate of 100 per minute. At first, the attacks occurred spontaneously. Afterwards, S.W. could provoke them by sitting in a dark corner and covering her face with her hands. Frequently, the experiment did not succeed. She had so-called good and bad days. The question of amnesia after the attacks is unfortunately very obscure. This much is certain, that after each attack, she was quite accurately orientated as to what she had gone through during the rapture. It is, however, uncertain how much she remembered of the conversations in which she served as medium and of changes in her surroundings during the attack. It often seemed that she did have a fleeting recollection, for directly after waking she would ask, Who was here? Wasn't X or Y here? What did he say? She also showed that she was superficially aware of the content of the conversations. She thus often remarked that the spirits had communicated to her before waking what they had said but frequently this was not the case. If, at her request, the contents of the trance speeches were repeated to her, she was often annoyed about them. She was then often sad and depressed for hours together, especially when any unpleasant indiscretions had occurred. She would then rail against the spirits and asserted that the next time she would beg her guides to keep such spirits far away. Her indignation was not feigned, for in the waking state she could but poorly control herself and her emotions, so that every mood was at once mirrored in her face. At times she seemed only slightly or not at all aware of the external proceedings during the attack. She seldom noticed when anyone left the room or came in. Once she forbade me to enter the room when she was awaiting special communications which she wished to keep secret from me. Nevertheless I went in and sat down with the three other sitters and listened to everything. Her eyes were open and she spoke to those present without noticing me. She only noticed me when I began to speak, which gave rise to a storm of indignation. She remembered better, but still apparently only in indefinite outlines, the remarks of those taking part, which referred to the trance speeches or directly to herself. I could never discover any definite rapport in this connection. In addition to these great attacks, which seemed to follow a certain law in their course, S.W. produced a great number of other automatisms, premonitions, forebodings, unaccountable moods, and rapidly changing fancies were all in the day's work. I never observed simple states of sleep. On the other hand, I soon noticed that, in the middle of a lively conversation, S.W. became quite confused and spoke without meaning in a peculiar monotonous way and looked in front of her dreamily with half-closed eyes. These lapses usually lasted but a few minutes. Then she would suddenly proceed, Yes, yes, what did you say? At first, she would not give any particulars about these lapses. She would reply offhand that she was a little giddy, had a headache, and so on. Later, she simply said, they were there again, meaning her spirits. She was often subjected to the lapses much against her will. She often tried to defend herself. I do not want to, not now. Come some other time. You seem to think I only exist for you. She had these lapses in the streets, in business, in fact, anywhere. 
If this happened to her in the street, she leaned against a house and waited till the attack was over. During these attacks, whose intensity was most variable, she had visions, frequently also, especially during the attacks where she turned extremely pale, she wandered, or as she expressed it, lost her body, and got away to distant places whither her spirits led her. Distant journeys during ecstasy strained her exceedingly. She was often exhausted for hours after, and many times complained that the spirits had again deprived her of much power. Such overstrain was now too much for her. The spirits must get another medium, and so forth. Once she was hysterically blind for half an hour after one of these ecstasies. Her gait was hesitating, feeling her way. She had to be led. She did not see the candle which was on the table. The pupils reacted. The visions occurred in great numbers without proper lapses, designating by this word only the higher grade of distraction of attention. At first the visions only occurred at the beginning of the sleep. Once after S.W. had gone to bed, the room became lighted up, and out of the general foggy light there appeared white glittering figures. They were throughout concealed in white veil-like robes. The women had head coverings like a turban and a girdle. Afterwards, according to the statements of S.W., the spirits were already there when she went to bed. Finally, she also saw the figures in bright daylight, though still somewhat blurred and only for a short time, provided there were no proper lapses, in which case the figures became solid enough to take hold of. But S.W. always preferred darkness. According to her account, the content of the vision was for the most part of a pleasant kind. Gazing at the beautiful figures, she received a feeling of delicious blessedness. More rarely, there were terrible visions of a demonic nature. These were entirely confined to the night or to dark rooms. Occasionally, S.W. saw black figures in the neighboring streets or in her room. Once, out in the dark courtyard, she saw a terrible copper-red face which suddenly stared at her and frightened her. I could not learn anything satisfactory about the first occurrence of the vision. She states that once at night, in her fifth or sixth year, she saw her guide, her grandfather, whom she had never known. I could not get any objective confirmation from her relatives of this early vision. Nothing of the kind is said to have happened until her first seance. With the exception of the hypnagogic brightness and the flashes, there were no rudimentary hallucinations, but from the beginning they were of a systemic nature, involving all the sense organs equally. So far as concerns the intellectual reaction to these phenomena, it is remarkable with what curious sincerity she regarded her dreams. Her entire somnibulic development, the innumerable puzzling events, seemed to her quite natural. She looked at her whole past in this light. Every striking event of earlier years stood to her in necessary and clear relationship to her present condition. She was happy in the consciousness of having found her real life task. Naturally, she was unswervingly convinced of the reality of her visions. I often tried to present her with some skeptical explanation, but she invariably turned this aside. In her usual condition, she did not clearly grasp a reasoned explanation, and in a semi-somnibulic state, she regarded it as senseless in view of the facts staring her in the face. She once said, I do not know if what the spirits say and teach me is true. Neither do I know if they are those by whose names they call themselves. But that my spirits exist, there is no question. I see them before me. I can touch them. I speak to them about everything I wish, as naturally as I'm now talking to you. They must be real. She absolutely would not listen to the idea that the manifestations were a kind of illness. 
Doubts about her health or about the reality of her dream would distress her deeply. She felt so hurt by my remarks that when I was present, she became reserved and for a long time refused to experiment if I was there. Hence, I took care not to express my doubts and thoughts aloud. From her immediate relatives and acquaintances, she received undivided allegiance and admiration. They asked her advice about all kinds of things. In time, she obtained such an influence upon her followers that three of her brothers and sisters likewise began to have hallucinations of a similar kind. Their hallucinations generally began as night dreams of a very vivid and dramatic kind. These gradually extended into the waking time, partly hypnagogic, partly hypnopompic. A married sister had extraordinary vivid dreams, which developed from night to night, and these appeared in the waking consciousness, at first as obscure illusions, next as real hallucinations, but they never reached the plastic clearness of S.W.'s visions. For instance, she once saw in a dream a black demonic figure at her bedside in animated conversation with a white beautiful figure which tried to restrain the black one. Nevertheless, the black one seized her and tried to choke her. Then she awoke. Bending over her, she then saw a black shadow with a human contour and nearby a white cloudy figure. The vision only disappeared when she lighted a candle. Similar visions were repeated dozens of times. The visions of the other two sisters were of a similar kind, but less intense. This particular type of attack, with the complete visions and ideas, had developed in the course of less than a month, but never afterwards exceeded these limits. What was later added to these was but the extension of all those thoughts and cycles of visions, which to a certain extent were already indicated quite at the beginning. As well as the great attacks and the lesser ones, there must also be noted a third kind of state comparable to the lapsed states. These are the semi-somnibulic states. They appeared at the beginning or the end of the great attacks, but also appeared without any connection with them. They developed gradually in the course of the first month. It's not possible to give a more precise account of the time of their appearance. In this state a fixed gaze, brilliant eyes, and a certain dignity and stateliness of movement are noticeable. In this phase, S.W. is herself, her own somnibulic ego. She is fully orientated to the external world, but seems to stand with one foot, as it were, in her dream world. She sees and hears her spirits, sees how they walk about in the room among those who form the circle, and stand by first one person, then by another. She is in possession of a clear remembrance of her visions, her journeys, and the instructions she receives. She speaks quietly, clearly, and firmly, and is always in a serious, almost religious frame of mind. Her bearing indicates a deeply religious mood, free from all pietistic flavor. Her speech is singularly uninfluenced by her guide's jargon, compounded of Bible and tract. Her solemn behavior has a suffering, rather pitiful aspect. She is painfully conscious of the great differences between her ideal world at night and the rough reality of the day. This state stands in sharp contrast to her waking existence, there is here no trace of that unstable and inharmonious creature, that extravagant, nervous temperament, which is so characteristic for the rest of her relationships. Speaking with her, you get the impression of speaking with a much older person who has attained through numerous experiences to a sure, harmonious footing. In this state, she produced her best results, whilst her romances correspond more closely to the conditions of her waking interests. The semi-somnambulism usually appears spontaneously, 
mostly during the table experiments, which sometimes announced by this means that S.W. was beginning to know beforehand every automatic communication from the table. She then usually stopped the table turning and, after a short time, passed more or less suddenly into an ecstatic state. S.W. showed herself to be very sensitive. She could divine and reply to simple questions thought of by a member of the circle who was not a medium. If only the latter would lay a hand on the table or on her hand, Genuine thought transference without direct or indirect contact could never be achieved. In juxtaposition with the obvious development of her whole personality, the continued existence of her earlier, ordinary character was all the more startling. She imparted with unconcealed pleasure all the little childish experiences, the flirtations and love secrets, all the rudeness and lack of education of her parents and contemporaries. To everyone who did not know her secret, she was a girl of fifteen and a half in no respect unlike a thousand other such girls. So much the greater was people's astonishment when they got to know her in her other aspect. Her near relatives could not at first grasp this change. To some extent, they never altogether understood it, so there was often bitter strife in the family, some of them taking sides for and others against S.W., either with enthusiastic overvaluation or with contemptuous censure of superstition. Thus did S.W., during the time I watched her closely, lead a curious, contradictory life, a real double life, with two personalities existing side by side or closely following upon one another and contending for the mastery. I now give some of the most interesting details of the sittings in chronological order. First and second sittings, August 1899. S.W. at once undertook to lead the communications, the psychograph, for which an upturned glass tumbler was used, on which two fingers of the right hand were laid, moved quick as lightning from letter to letter. Slips of paper marked with letter and numbers had been arranged in a circle around the glass. It was communicated that the medium's grandfather was present and would speak to us. There then followed many communications in quick sequence, of a most religious, edifying nature, in part in properly made words, partly in words with the letters transposed, and partly in a series of reversed letters. The last words and sentences were produced so quickly that it was not possible to follow without first inverting the letters. The communications were once interrupted in abrupt fashion by a new communication which announced the presence of the writer's grandfather. On this occasion, the jesting observation was made. Evidently, the two spirits get on very badly together. During this attempt, darkness came on. Suddenly, S.W. became very disturbed, sprang up in terror, fell on her knees and cried, There, there, do you not see that light, that star there? And pointed to a dark corner of the room. She became more and more disturbed and called for a light in terror. She was pale, wept. It was all so strange. She did not know in the least what was the matter with her. When a candle was brought, she became calm again. The experiments were now stopped. In the next sitting, which took place in the evening two days later, Similar communications from S.W.'s grandfather were obtained. When darkness fell, S.W. suddenly leaned back on the sofa, grew pale, almost shut her eyes, and lay there motionless. The eyeballs were turned upwards. The lid reflex was present as well as tactile sensation. The breathing was gentle, almost imperceptible, the pulse small and weak. This attack lasted about half an hour, when S.W. suddenly sighed and got up. The extreme pallor, which had lasted throughout the whole attack, now gave place to her usual pale pink color. 
She was somewhat confused and distraught, indicated that she had seen all sorts of things, but would tell nothing. Only after urgent questioning would she relate that in an extraordinary waking condition, she had seen her grandfather arm-in-arm with the writer's grandfather. The two had gone rapidly by in an open carriage, side by side. In the third seance, which took place some days later, there was a similar attack of more than half an hour's duration. S.W. afterwards told of many white, transfigured forms who each gave her a flower of special symbolic significance. Most of them were dead relatives. Concerning the exact content of their talk, she maintained an obstinate silence. Fourth Attack After S.W. had entered into the somnambulic state, she began to make curious movements with her lips and made swallowing, gurgling noises. Then she whispered very softly and unintelligibly. When this had lasted some minutes, she suddenly began to speak in an altered, deep voice. She spoke of herself in the third person. She is not here. She has gone away. There followed several communications of a religious kind. From the content and the way of speaking, it was easy to conclude that she was imitating her grandfather, who had been a clergyman. The content of the talk did not rise above the mental level of the communications. The tone of the voice was somewhat forced and only became natural when, in the course of the talk, the voice approximated the medium's own. In later sittings, the voice was only altered for a few moments when a new spirit manifested itself. Afterwards, there was amnesia for the trance conversation. She gave hints about a sojourn in the other world, and she spoke of an undreamed-of blessedness which she felt. It must be further noted that her conversation in the attack occurred quite spontaneously and was not in response to any suggestions. Directly after this seance, S.W. became acquainted with the book of Justinus Kerner, the seer of Prevorst. She began thereupon to magnetize herself toward the end of the attack, partly by means of regular passes, partly by curious circles and figures of eight, which she described symmetrically with both arms. She did this, she said, to disperse the severe headaches which occurred after the attacks. In the August seances, not detailed here, there were, in addition to the grandfather, numerous spirits of other relatives who did not produce anything very remarkable. Each time when a new one came on the scene, the movement of the glass was changed in a striking way. It generally ran along the rows of letters, touching one or the other of them, but no sense could be made of it. The orthography was very uncertain and arbitrary, and the first sentences were frequently incomprehensible or broken up into a meaningless medley of letters. Generally, automatic writing suddenly began at this point. Sometimes automatic writing was attempted during complete darkness. The movements began with violent backward jerks of the whole arm, so that the paper was pierced by the pencil. The first attempt at writing consisted of numerous strokes and zigzag lines about eight centimeters high. In later attempts, there came first unreadable words in large handwriting, which gradually became smaller and clearer. It was not essentially different from the medium's own. The grandfather was again the controlling spirit. Fifth Attack Somnobulic Attacks in September 1899 S.W. sits upon the sofa, leans back, shuts her eyes, breathes lightly and regularly. She gradually becomes cataleptic. The catalepsy disappears after about two minutes when she lies in an apparently quiet sleep with complete muscular relaxation. She suddenly begins to speak in a subdued voice, No! You must take the red, I'll take the white, you can take the green, and you take the... Are you ready? We will go now. 
a pause of several minutes during which her face assumes a corpse-like pallor. Her hands feel cold and are very bloodless. She suddenly calls out with a loud, solemn voice, Albert, Albert, Albert. Then whispering, now you speak, followed by a longer pause when the pallor of the face attains the highest possible degree. Again, in a loud, solemn voice, Albert, Albert, do you not believe your father? I tell you many errors are contained in N's teachings. Think about it. Pause. The pallor of the face decreases. He is very frightened. He could not speak any more. These words in her usual conversational tone. Pause. He will certainly think about it. S.W. now speaks again in the same tone, in a strange idiom which sounds like French or Italian, now recalling the former, now the latter. She speaks fluently, rapidly, and with charm. It is possible to understand a few words, but not to remember the whole, because the language is so strange. From time to time, certain words recur, as wena, wenas, wenael, wena, etc. The absolute naturalness of the proceedings is bewildering. From time to time, she pauses as if someone were answering her. Suddenly, she speaks in German. Is time already up? In a troubled voice. Must I go already? Oh, goodbye, goodbye. With the last words, there passes over her face an indescribable expression of ecstatic blessedness. She raises her arms, opens her eyes, hitherto closed, looks radiantly upwards. She remains a moment thus. Then her arms sink slackly, her eyes shut. The expression of her face is tired and exhausted. After a short cataleptic stage, she awakes with a sigh. She looks around, astonished. I've slept again, haven't I? She is told she has been talking during the sleep, whereupon she becomes much annoyed, and this increases when she learns she has spoken in a foreign tongue. But didn't I tell the spirits I don't want it? It mustn't be. It exhausts me too much. Begins to cry. Oh, God, oh, God, must then everything, everything come back again like last time? Is nothing spared me? The next day, at the same time, there was another attack. When S.W. has fallen asleep, Ulrich von Gerbenstein suddenly announces himself. He is an entertaining chatterer, speaks very fluently in high German with a North German accent. Asked what S.W. is now doing, after much circumlocution, he explains that she is far away, and he is meanwhile here to look after her body, the circulation of the blood, the respiration, and so forth. He must take care that, meanwhile, no black person takes possession of her and harms her. Upon urgent questioning, he relates that S.W. has gone with the others to Japan to appear to a distant relative and to restrain him from a stupid marriage. He then announces in a whisper the exact moment when the manifestation takes place. Forbidden any conversation for a few minutes, he points to the sudden pallor occurring in S.W., remarking that the materialization at such a great distance is at the cost of correspondingly great force. He then orders cold bandages to the head to alleviate the severe headache which would occur afterwards. As the color of the face gradually becomes more natural, the conversation grows livelier. All kinds of childish jokes and trivialities are uttered. Suddenly Ulrich von Gerbenstein says, I see them coming, but they are still very far off. I see them there like a star. S.W. points to the north. We are naturally astonished and ask why they do not come from the east, whereto Ulrich von Gerbenstein laughingly retorts, Oh, but they come the direct way over the North Pole. I'm going now. Farewell. Immediately after, S.W. sighs, wakes up, 
is ill-tempered, complains of extremely bad headache. She saw Ulrich von Gerbenstein standing by her body. What had he told us? She gets angry about the silly chatter from which he cannot refrain. Sixth attack. Begins in the usual way. Extreme pallor, lies stretched out, scarcely breathing. Speaks suddenly with a loud, solemn voice. Yes, be frightened. I am. I warned you against N's teaching. See, in hope is everything that belongs to faith. You would like to know who I am. God gives where one least expects it. Do you not know me? Then unintelligible whispering. After a few minutes, she awakes. Seventh attack. S.W. soon falls asleep, lies stretched out on the sofa, is very pale, says nothing, sighs deeply from time to time, casts up her eyes, rises, sits on the sofa, bends forward, speaks softly, You have sinned grievously, have fallen far, bends forward still, as if speaking to someone who kneels before her. She stands up, turns to the right, stretches out her hands, and points to the spot over which she has been bending. Will you forgive her? She asks loudly. Do not forgive men, but their spirits. Not she, but her human body has sinned. Then she kneels down, remains quite still for about ten minutes in the attitude of prayer. Then she gets up suddenly, looks to heaven with ecstatic expression, and then throws herself again on her knees, with her face bowed on her hands, whispering incomprehensible words. She remains rigid in this position several minutes. Then she gets up, looks again upwards with a radiant countenance, and lies down on the sofa. Soon after, she wakes. End of chapter 1, section 2. Read by Olivia.